Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and begin our time today. It's good to see everyone. We are going to be looking at a pretty interesting section in numbers this morning. I, I've missed the last few weeks. I was in the new members class uh, right on the other side of this wall, so I wasn't able to be in here for uh, the last two weeks as we've been marching through these marching orders in numbers. So, so I wasn't here, but I am not complaining, as you'll see, because we'll be reminded today that complaining is a big deal. And so it's an offense against God. Uh, it's very much an attack on the character of God, and so I don't want to complain. But as we, as we walk through the text this morning, so much practical insight, as we'll even notice as we read through chapter 11, this is certainly a section that was on the mind of Paul as he's even correcting the, the Corinthians in regards to a variety of serious, offen- serious offenses against God. And he'll list uh, grumbling as one of those in an appeal to Numbers 11 in that text in 1 Corinthians. So as, as we walk through, we'll kind of begin finding Israel really in kind of this triumphant stage as we end chapter 10. I mean, all is well. They're leaving Sinai. So the excitement in the camp about this reality. But that triumphant feel lasts uh, a very brief timeline. We'll even observe the, the number of days that are listed that this, this triumph experience takes place. And then very, very much a, a theme that begins in chapter 11 that continues through much of Numbers and really characterizes this whole first generation of Israelites that, that left Egypt. Just this characterization of rebellion against God, disobedience towards God, and manifested often through grumbling and complaining about what God has ordained in their lives. So really a dramatic shift in numbers as this next section begins in chapter 11. And so between both of those chapters, chapters 11 and chapter 12, we're going to see what I'm going to outline is three complaints. But you're going to see a lot of complaining going on between those, those three sections of, of complaints, but there's three fits of grumbling that take place, and you see those in both chapter 11 and chapter 12. So, so we'll begin in chapter 10 with that triumphant, victorious excitement. We're, we're leaving. It's time to go. Uh, we're leaving Sinai. We're headed to the promised land. You know, that's what's, that's what's going to be taking place, and, and that's going to last longer because of their rebellion. So let's pray, and then we will dive in to the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this morning. What a privilege it is to gather on the Lord's Day to worship you. Uh, how vital it is that as we gather, that we open up your word <clears throat> to know your thoughts and then to respond rightly to your, your authoritative word, the command from you, that we would respond with belief, that we'd uh, respond in faith, that we would respond obediently. So I pray that would be what takes place today, that we would be reminded of what, what you've done, that we would be convicted to respond rightly to your faithfulness uh, in, in our lives, and may you be glorified in our lives as we entrust ourselves to you. And may you be glorified today through our worship uh, as we gather. So we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you know, we got a lot of uh, 
former trumpet players in at Grace Church. I was going to call on Bobby and a few others to bring their trumpets today. That's, that's where we left last week, right? Was with that trumpet I call. I bring it. That'd be about all I can okay, I mean, you could, it still would be a visual aid, right? You know, you could have had your trumpet. Yes, yeah. So we ended with those two trumpets at the beginning of chapter 10. And so now we're going to jump right in in verse 11. If you think about the book of Numbers, there's been a lot of administration. There's been a lot of um, order kind of listed of, of what things were going to look like in this departure from, from Sinai. They, you know, you've had this census taken. You have the numbers figured out. You have the, the logical um, protocol for what things are going to look like as, as these marching orders are given. And so then what we see in verse 11 through the rest of chapter 10 very much follows through with what you have read about in previous chapters in Numbers about what this would look like. And so in verse 11 of chapter 10, you're just reminded of this timeline, you know, all of this wandering in Sinai, you're still talking about, you know, just around this year timeline uh, that's been taking place. And so here we are in, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So there you are in verse 13. They set out. I mean, this is exciting. They have, they're, they're moving out. They've left this um, they left Sinai and they are headed um, to the promised land, they're, to Canaan. They are, they're leaving at the command of the Lord by Moses. So actually verse 12 really is more of a, a summary of, of where they're going to be headed. That's where we find ourselves at the end of chapter 12. When you read in verse 12 to 10, it says, And by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. Well, after everything that unfolds in chapter 11 and 12, you find at the very end of chapter 12, that's where they arrive at, the wilderness of Paran. Uh, so we'll see that in, in just a few minutes. So um, the logical order that I was mentioning, I mean, that's what's been described in Numbers. But then you'll even notice there's just some logical realities here. Look at verse 17. So if you're thinking of these, these groups of three as far as tribes set out in groups of three. And then in verse 17, when it says, and when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari who carried the tabernacle set out. So, I mean, it makes sense that they would, they would leave with, with the tabernacle equipment, you know, to set up prior to the group in verse 21, when you read about the Kohathites setting out after that crew, the Kohathites set out because they're carrying like the furniture, the holy things that belong inside of the tabernacle. So I'm just trying to point out that the, these commands that have been given, they make a lot of sense. The order of the, the tribes as they leave out in this march. So then in verse 25, it also makes sense in this third group of tribes that then Dan would be in the, the place that they, um, this tribe would be in, the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, because they're acting as the rear guard of all the camps set out by their companies. And so you have this third uh, group of, of uh, or this final group of, of tribes. And so there's just a logical order to all of this. So then in verse 28, you read, this was the order 
of march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. So they've set out, and what you've just read is obedient response from Israel to the commands of God. They've done it God's way. They've done it as God has commanded, and um, there's excitement in the air, and there's, there's, they're trusting God, and they're following Moses' leadership. And so we'll jump into this, this uh, really parenthetical that takes place in verse 29. Let me read all, uh, 29 through 32, and we'll just interact with, with this for a moment. And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go, I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. And he said, please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same will we do to you. Because I, I think there would be some profit, some benefit for all of us just to interact with why this, this is here in, in Numbers 10. I mean, it, it's, it took place, but why would, why would this be communicated here in the text, this interaction that Moses has with his brother-in-law. Moses says to Hobab, the son of Ruel, uh, and just really a point real quick, it, it seems that Ruel, it, you know, this is Jethro, this is, um, is you know, we, we read that in, in Exodus, um, same, same individual, um, multiple names given here, but Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, his plea is for Ruel to come with him. Why does Moses want Ruel to come with uh, the nation of Israel? He knows where to camp. He knows where to camp. Okay. So let's interact with that for a second. Is this, is this a, a good request of Moses? Is this a bad request of Moses? Yeah. It, interesting. Um, you say that... And I could think of some reasons why. What would be, what's on your mind to say, who, where, who, who would uh, Moses be dependent on in regards to guidance, uh, in regards to the future, where they're headed? Lord. Dependent on the Lord. And how, how is the Lord going to guide? Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Okay, right. So I think these are, this is this fair point. In fact, some, some of the, commentaries that I even read would take, uh, this was, this is actually like Moses not really fully dependent upon the Lord to think God's going to guide us, but man, I really need somebody who knows this peninsula well, because I don't. And so I really would benefit from, from Ruel. I actually wonder if this is not, uh, there's no, well, this, we don't get any sort of, um, follow-up from the Lord that this was an offense to the Lord that, that Moses would ask this thing. I actually think this is just a great illustration of recognizing that God is sovereign and in God's sovereignty, he uses means. And so I, I don't know, I think there would be a place for just even seeing Moses' request is very much legitimate. As long as Moses is recognizing, as he has already said, like the Lord is going to do good to us. Like 
You've seen God's providence on display and he's going to sovereignly guide them. He's gonna go before them. So he's gonna protect them. He's spoken to them back at Sinai. He's going to guide them as has already been listed by this you know, pillar, the, the cloud uh, and fire. I mean, he's going to guide them and he's going to go before them. He's going to protect them. Moses is very much entrusting himself to the Lord, dependent on the Lord. But I think he's also just in this request to rule, he is perhaps mindful that it's not a conflict with God being the one that they're dependent on. Ruel might be a resource as well to kind of know the train and, and help in, in, in their journey as long as Moses' dependence is still on the Lord. So I think it's very much, uh, I'd be comfortable just saying this, this is a neutral statement by Moses, just recognizing this would be good for you, Ruel. And in fact, by saying this would... This would be good. What is Moses even appealing to when he's trying to convince Ruel to come along with him? Um, do you recognize kind of like Abrahamic covenant kind of understanding of things here? Like Moses is basically saying to him, like, God is going to be good to us. God is going to bless us. And, and God's going to bless those um, who bless us. Like those who God is good to Israel and those who are good to Israel will experience God's goodness as well. I think you're kind of seeing this appeal to the Abrahamic covenant and trying to convince Ruel to come along. Yes? Just to clarify, is Moses talking directly to his father-in-law's son, Obad, and saying, follow me? Yes. You should follow me, as opposed to he, follow, he Moses, speaking to his father-in-law? No, he's speaking to Hobab. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I see why you're asking for clarification, because I'm using the wrong name. I've said Ruel multiple times, haven't I? He's talking to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite. Um, thank you, Rick. Um, any other comments or questions? Yes. Yeah, I mean, he starts off saying, it'll be good for you, and I'll give this to you. And then he's like, he, that, he says, no, I don't want to go with you. <laughs> and then he appeals to, well, but you'd be useful. You, you would help us. Okay. And then he ends with, God's going to do us good, and what good he does us, he'll do to you. Yes. Yeah, I think there's very much faithfulness, uh, faith in God in, in the appeal that he makes to Hobab. Um, and, and so it, it's interesting. I, I hope that we'll keep this phrase in our minds as we move into the next chapter. When, when you're reading, uh, the Lord has promised good to Israel. And that is on the lips of Moses. He's convinced of that. And that's his sales pitch uh, to Hobab because he knows it to be true. And, and he's, he's convinced of that. And, and so then you're going to be searching for the Lord is good to Israel on the minds of the Israelites in chapter 11 because they so quickly forget what they were convinced of uh, by their leader at the end of chapter 10. Um, well, we can go ahead and continue then in the text. So verse 33, so they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. So, you know what, I, I meant to say, we, we don't ever hear what Hobab's decision was. 
uh, and everybody wants to know, I would think, as you read through it. Uh, you do read of descendants. I think it's even in Judges. I don't have the cross-reference in front of me, but, but with them. Say that again, Judges 1.16. Judges 1.16. So while you don't hear a, all right, you've convinced me kind of language in, in chapter 10, you do see uh, descendants of Hobab um, with the Israelites in Judges 1.16. So that's a significant thing to consider. All right, so the, the chapter ends with triumphant realities of God as their protector, God as their provider, God as their guide. You know, he, he's going to guide them. And so you even see as the ark set out, um, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. So, so God is leading, God is guiding, God is protecting, and they're glorifying God by believing so. So it's almost, it is, it is shocking then to move into verse one of chapter 11. You wonder, what happened? Because what's the timeline here? Well, uh, from this like, God is good to Israel, uh, and then the people complained, I mean, it's taken place during this, this journey that they just set out on. How long is the journey so far? Three days. Three days. So, but yeah, no, I know what y'all are referring to, but yeah, think about it. When they left here in 1011 and God is good to Israel is on their lips, then you're saying they set out and, and this, this journey so far has lasted three days. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord, three days journey, verse 33 of chapter 10. So it, within those three days, they've already find themselves uh, sinning grievously against the Lord. So let's go ahead, we'll take it in sections, but we want to go ahead and read through, my goal is to read through all of chapter 11 and 12. So as we read through this, again, there's going to be three sections of of grumbling that we'll read about. So let's let's read the first, and then I'd like to go to this cross-reference in 1 Corinthians 10, just to ask a question and spend some time discussing um, why is this such an offense against God? So, Numbers 11, 1 through 3. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down, so the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So they've complained. It's even interesting. uh, On some levels, it's hard to believe. And on others, it's very much on display in our own lives. And it's very much been on display already in the nation Israel. As you read in Exodus, think about Think about the dramatic transition that would take place in Exodus between seeing God's miraculous work in delivering them, miraculously providing for them, and then just responding and grumbling and complaining. Uh, That took place multiple times throughout Exodus. It's going to take place multiple times through Numbers. And so that's very much the pattern that's happening here. God indeed has been good to Israel, and they can entrust themselves to him. He's providing for them. He's guiding them. He's leading them. He's protecting them. And here they are complaining about their misfortunes. And we do well to note when it says, and when the Lord heard it, um, that is a statement that we ought to recognize that, that in all of life, God hears 
everything. God knows everything. God's omniscience is on display. And so you'll read both in chapter 11 and chapter 12 in, in the midst of grumbling and complaining that the Lord hears it. Uh, the Lord heard the complaints of Israel. The Lord heard the complaints of Miriam in chapter 12. The fact that God hears everything is very much a comfort to those who are in a right relationship with God. It's also very much uh, a warning to us when we find ourselves in disobedience towards God, sinning against God, grumbling against God. The Lord hears it. And so we're mindful of that as we read through these first three verses. Well, there's more grumbling to look at and maybe even in more detail through the rest of the chapter. But let's, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 10 real quick because I, I just want to read this passage with very little comment and then just open up the room. Just, I want, I'm curious to know what comes to mind when you think, why is grumbling such an offense against God? I mean, look at the sins that it is listed next to in Paul's warning to uh, the believers in light of the testimony of unbelieving Israel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, you have in your notes, you know, 1 through 13, but just for time's sake, I'll jump in in verse 6. Now these things, so verses 1 through 5 would be speaking of events that we read of here in Numbers 11. Um, events that would have unfolded throughout the Exodus, but also here in Numbers 11 as well. Uh, and verse 6 says, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So, so here's the thing that is an example that we would not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So you can, you can identify why idolatry is such an offense against God. If we're to worship God only and worship that would be given to anything else is an offense to God. We recognize the offense of idolatry. Then you move into verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We recognize how sinful and evil uh, adultery is to read a, of this example that the sexual immorality that, that um, you see on display that we would learn from their example here as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 9 says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And then you read in verse 10, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Grumbling, listed alongside idolatry, listed alongside sexual immorality, listed alongside lack of trust in God, by putting God to the test. Why is grumbling such an offense against God? Yes. God gives good and he gives trials in life. And in Job, I was looking at Job 2, um, shall we not accept good from God and not accept adversity? Very good. So what, what even grumbling is an offense 
against God and we're recognizing it's an offense against God because we're also recognizing that whatever comes our way, God has ordained, God has brought it about. So, so your cross-reference in Job is so helpful to recognize the reason it's an offense is because everything that, that happens is something that God has brought about um, for our good, for his glory, and we can trust him in that. So when we're grumbling, we are um, denying that. What, what else comes to mind? What, why is grumbling such an offense against God? Yes, Martha. It's the opposite of being thankful. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So if you think, um, what are we created for? To, to give God glory. And so we, we glorify God by, by giving him praise thanksgiving for who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we give glory to God as we, we praise him and thank him. And so as you're saying, Martha, when we grumble, we're doing the very opposite of what we were created to do. We're uh, glory thieves when we grumble. Yes? Doesn't it also take us back to the first sin? I mean, with, in, the, in the garden mm-hmm. where... Satan tempted Eve to doubt what God said. So there it is. Satan goes back and always wants to have us doubt what God said and yeah. what God wants mm-hmm. to do, good or evil. Yes. Well, ad- I'm sorry, adversity for us, for our benefit. Mm-hmm. He's always used, put a doubt in, what, in our minds of what God says. And, and as you say that, I'm even, are you even in this event, are you appealing back to the, the Lord is good to Israel? Amen. It is what they're tempted to doubt in the midst of, um, I mean, this is not disingenuous, disingenuous when you read um, verse, oh, I'm looking at First Corinthians and I'm like, why does chapter 11 not say what I want it to say? Numbers 11, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. So I think what Rick is saying, you know, it's, it's, they're, inconveniences, difficulties. I mean, they are in the wilderness. In fact, I have not been, uh, you know, in the Sinai Peninsula, okay? And I know some here have, but a lot of the commentators would say, if you were there, you might relate to Israel in this, in, in the temptation towards grumbling, but God does not. It's an offense against God. But so I think what Rick's saying is there, there are difficulties that come their way, and in the midst of those difficulties, they're tempted to doubt, they're tempted to deny that, that God indeed is good to Israel. And so the response is grumbling. Yes. I think it also, like, the grumbling reveals, like, uh, problems with the heart. You know, like, things that uh, just, that, that are there, you know, may not, uh, you know, may not be uh, there on the, on the surface level, but then they, they come out, you know, when there's, a, when, when there's some force or something, you know, uh-huh. acting on the outside to, you know, to push it out. Right. Um, and, and, and God, you know, he uses that to, I think, to show us, like, you know, that we uh, shouldn't, uh, shouldn't complain, shouldn't grumble against him because, you know, he, he does, uh, uh, he brings those those things, you know, I mean, like First Peter, it says, like, don't the uh, or this is kind of all joy when you fall into various trials, or or don't don't uh, okay. uh, why why are, why are you like you know uh, so worried that this uh, fiery trial has come upon you, you know why why are you so perplexed, you know about this? It's just God's using that to to grow us and you know mold us and shape us. Uh, so you know, grumbling doesn't. Uh, uh, fit into that context, you know, for what God has 
you know, for us, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jim. I was say, in, the, in my own life, grumbling takes place when my plan gets short-circuited. And I, it, it's a shortcut straight to what I want to do rather than asking a question, I wonder what God wants in this situation. I grumble because my plan has been short-circuited and I don't even ask the question. Yes. Um, I wonder, wonder what God wants in this. And in Psalms it says, they grumbled in the desert, they wouldn't wait for God's plan to unfold. You know, so right. God had a, a, a plan and, and in each of our lives, He has His plan for us to unfold and we have to be patient sometimes. You know, yeah. and, and ask the question rather than just trying to jump to it. So a good word there. Maybe, not only that maybe sometimes we're ignoring things about God, maybe we're just not even bringing God into the, the scenario at all. Uh, Ruth, love this as our the last observation real quick. When we start complaining, we're, we're wanting to put ourselves above God. Mm-hmm. No, your plan's not right. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have messed up. And, you know, so we tend to want to put ourselves above him, um, making those thinking that our decisions are better. Mm-hmm. Very good. So we can recognize a variety of ways. That it's obvious to us why this would be. We're, we're just doubting who God is and what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. We're not trusting God. Uh, then you can even move into the, another phase here. Why is this an offense against God? Because it has disastrous consequences. I mean, if you even look through the rest of this chapter, you're going to say, what, what does grumbling lead to? I mean, is it just this, is it an individual Sin, does your grumbling only affect you? Like if, you, if you're grumbling, you have a bad day. I mean, what, what does it lead to? It, we, Other people have a bad day. Spread. 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 That's yeah. right. Negative opinion spreads yeah. oh, times faster than right. yeah, positive yes. one. And as even, I guess, what, two weeks ago, I using that word like communicable. You know, like if you're thinking, you know, boy, that's a shared um, infectious response you know you got grumbling and that so that's what's going to take place next in in chapter 11 it's not that just you have you know isolated events of grumbling and you're like oh that's just negative nancy over there no it's like it is negative israel like they are um they are all um characterized by grumbling um Jeff, David Guzik in his during work commentary mentions that in describing life in Egypt, some would think that slavery there was heaven on earth c- c- compared to what they were going through in Israel. Uh-huh. Israel's <laughs> always crammed with wonderful foods, but he says Israel here is engaging in creative memory, choosing to remember certain things about Egypt and exaggerating those things while at the same time choosing to forget other things. Very much. I think we're going to even find ourselves. There's a selective memory on display in chapter 11. Um, there is, uh, there's this reality that in the midst of grumbling and complaining that, that we are focused on the misfortunes that you read about at the beginning of chapter 11, but um, blind, blindness, ignorance to God's many benefits. So if you think of, it would not have been hard, even in the midst of misfortune, to consider God's benefits, to think upon God's goodness. And when, when we grumble, you're going to see that that grumbling leads others to sin. I think it's even noteworthy that you see it discourages leadership in, in Israel. Like, this is going to exasperate Moses. But then you're going to even recognize, just in, whether it's in the home or whether it's in the church or whether it's, you know, in any situation, grumbling is infectious and grumbling discourages 
others. It bring, causes others to sin. It discourages leadership. Uh, you're just not thinking rightly. You're not putting truth into the scenario. You are forgetting God's many benefits. And really, we're just acting like the world when we grumble. We're, we're not acting like those who have hope in God. So, I mean, we could go on and on, but um, it's almost shocking on one level to see grumbling listed by, you know, it's going to lead people to idolatry. It's going to lead people to sexual immorality. Learn from Israel's mistakes because Israel also grumbled too. So you're just seeing grumbling up there with boy, offenses against God. Grumbling offends God because we're, it's a denial of God's character. All right, so that's what we're going to see a lot of here. So um, God shows his anger that, that this is an offense against God in chapter 11. When the grumbling takes place, God's response is anger. It's kindled. His anger is kindled. And so fire breaks out. Um, and consumes the outlying parts of the camp. So it gets their attention. They're recognizing we are acting foolishly. And so they, they, they go to their mediator. They go to Moses to intercede on their behalf. They cry out to Moses. Moses prays to the Lord and the fire dies down. So they learn their mes- lesson, right? Uh, that's what you'd like to think. Um, and so the, that place was called the fire of the Lord burned among them. And so verse four then uh, jumps right back in. Round two, uh, second fit of grumbling, beginning in verse four. Now the rabble, uh, anybody have anything different in their translation for that word rabble? Mixed multitude. Mixed multitude, that's helpful. Because it seems like this rabble, this riffraff that is being referred to is is some of those non-Israelites that would be among the Israelites on this journey. And so this... um, that this rabble that's among them has an influence among them though too. These individuals have a strong craving. It says in verse four, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Of those... uh, Six things listed. Which ones do you like really long for? I'm just curious. There, anybody a six for six on this list? I'm not. And yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. Right. So, they're they're longing for what they they had at certain points, and you even wonder how genuine they are on on these things that they had in abundance. These things that cost nothing. I mean, they're not thinking clearly in their longing here, but uh. But now this is not their situation. Verse six says, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Okay, so here's the argument. We want meat to eat. And it's brought on by this mixed multitude, this rabble, and that it is well received by the Israelites. They're like, yeah, you're right. Great point. And so they join in in this, this complaining. Um, real quick, Let's go over to Psalms. This, uh, this is referred to in Psalm 78. If you think through kind of this Old Testament history that's given in, in Psalm 78, the things that ought to be taught to our children and our children's children, um, things not to hide from our children and to tell to the coming generation. And some of that that is listed in chapter 78, beginning in verse 21, refers to what unfolds in Numbers. So Psalm 78, verse 21 it says, therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. 
Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate, man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. And he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. Uh, Tell you what, so we don't get to a spoiler here. I'm just gonna stop in verse 28 uh, because we already are starting to talk about stuff that we haven't gotten to yet. God's gonna give them meat to eat and Psalm 78 interacts with that reality. But back to Numbers 11, you know, they're longing for meat. All they have is this manna, you know, poor me. All I have is God's provision daily for me. Seems to be what they're saying. And so look at verse seven. So, so we jump in with the description of manna. And, and I'm curious, why do you think this is here? Let me read it and, and just tell me, how do we, what benefit is it to describe manna here? After they've just complained about, all we got is manna. And so now there's a description of manna. Verse seven, now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. What did Moses say in chapter 10 that is demonstrated in, uh, did I say Numbers 10? I might not have. In chapter 10, uh, what does Moses say back in chapter 10 that's on display in Numbers 11, 7 through 9? The, the Lord is good to Israel. That's right, God's goodness. I mean, even manna may be, you know, uh, manna, but it's still got some like versatility. Apparently, you know, you can bake it, you can boil it, you can put it with oil. You know, it tastes like cake baked with oil. And that, yeah, <laughs> manicotti. I mean, we got all kinds of options. It's kind of like, you know, yeah, beans, rice. Yeah. Exodus says it was sweet like honey. Yeah, sweet like honey. I mean, that does not sound, you know, terrible. This that, that God has been good to Israel, and um. So the, the description there, I think, just reminds us of that. Um, God's provided, and he's provided in a creative way. And he's provided in such a way that it's clearly God's provision. And it's, it's got, you know, some pleasing benefits to it. And, and yet it's not fish, melons, cucumbers that cost us nothing with onions and garlic. Um, yeah, okay. Didn't they have a, all their herds with them? Yes, they, 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 had, they, had they do have access to, to meat. In fact, you're gonna, I say yes to that because you're going to even see it in, in Moses, his like sarcastic response to God when God says, I'm going to give them meat to eat. And he's gonna be like, yeah, how are you going to do that? 600,000 you know, men with their families. And how, how are you going to do that? Um, okay, so they want meat to eat. They would have had other provisions in, in what they're traveling with. But uh, the man just reminds us, indeed, God has been good to Israel. And so this situation, this complaining, this grumbling has worn out Moses. And so Moses says uh, in verse 10, uh, he heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill 
with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Um, Moses is overwhelmed. The grumbling has discouraged Moses, and Moses is grumbling. And so he's caught this infectious disease, and so he too is grumbling, he's exasperated, the people have overwhelmed him, and, and here's an honest statement here. The burden is too heavy for me, says Moses in verse 14. So then again, God's good and gracious response um, he appoints other elders to aid Moses uh, in this, this task of, of leadership. Um, verses 16 and following deal with, with that. In fact, um, as I look at the clock, I just want to summarize that um, the, the ability that is given, this temporary ability that's given to the elders to prophesy very much proves that God has ordained these men to this task. And so it gives them the, this um, authentication. It's evident to others that God has chosen these 70 men as elders. And so they, they're temporarily uh, overcome by the spirit with the ability to prophesy and then that that ability leaves but uh you're seeing that these these men were appointed by god and the reason that they were appointed by god was to come alongside moses and, and assist in leadership and so more could be said there but i i want to at least finish chapter 11 uh, we can we can be brief with chapter 12 next week and, and focus on chapter 13. But, but let's look at verses 31 through 35 real quick of chapter 11. Because the, the request has been meat and God is going to provide meat. Verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered 10 homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibrath Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibrath Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. As brief as I want to be, I, I guess I actually have to go back to the interaction that God has with Moses in earlier to, to interact with what this solution from God. Uh, go back to verse 18. Um, Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, who's saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, so pause for a second. They want meat to eat. God's solution isn't just, I'm going to even give you meat one day. 
God, you shall not, verse 19, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? And so this is where Moses' response is also, that Moses says in 21, the people among whom I'm number 600,000 on foot, and you've said I'll give them meat for a whole month, shall flocks and herds, uh, Jim, to your point, verse 22, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, am I unable the Lord says, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So they complain about meat. Moses is like, no way it can be done. We've got 600,000. The Lord tells the people through Moses, I will feed you and it's not going to be, and I'm going to feed you meat and it's not just going to be a one meal thing. It's going to be for an entire month and it's going to overwhelm you. It's going to be coming out your nostrils. And, and Moses doubts it. And God says, am I unable? Am I not powerful enough? Am I not the sovereign God overall who has provided for you, who delivered you from Egypt? On and on you could go. Um, Moses grumbles and doubts the character of God. So then you read of God's provision here uh, as you, you read through verses 31 through 35. Uh, he provides for them in abundance, in miraculous and dramatic ways. There, there may be some basis for recognizing that, that birds migrate, but this is not explained by just a natural migration. You have such an amount of quail that, that come in and, and surround the camp uh, in, a, in a large area, and they're just piles of birds. There's two different ways of going about this. Is this saying that all the birds were just flying around on the ground upwards of the however many feet, or is it that there are piles of birds laying on the ground that high? And it seems like if they gather as many quail as they gather to feed, um, you know, the the two and a half million people for an entire month. You're talking about piles of birds on the ground seems to make the most sense. And so um, anyway, uh, they have meat to eat. Look at verse 32 again. The people rose all that day, all night, and all the next day gathered the quail. They gathered 10 homers. I'm told a homer is like this dry goods amount that like a donkey would be able to carry. So if you're thinking of the amount that one donkey would be able to carry is one homer. So if you got 10 homers, you know, you got a lot of quail and each person is gathering that kind of amount of quail because they're going to feed for a month. So then what they do is they um, they spread them out themselves all around the camp um, while the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Um, we'll end with, with Psalm 78 because uh, we, we, uh, we stopped short of verses, a few verses. Turn over to Psalm 78 and um, we'll, we'll close with this. Um, I'll jump back in in verse 26. Psalm 78, 26. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled 
for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still on their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Okay, so, so both the provision of quail and the judgment of quail it can be explained by God alone. You, know, you can't just say, well, the quail came in merely because of you know, migration. No, God, God brought this about. It's also easy to recognize, yeah, I can, it's not hard for me to imagine that somebody might eat a quail you know, that's one month old and they might get some sort of sickness. Obviously, they would have, you know, you got quail jerky going on here probably, right? They let it dry out in the sun and they probably salted it some level. But anyway, people got sick from the quail that they ate. And the reason that people got sick and died from the quail they ate is not just some biological reality. It's, it's judgment from God. That's what Psalm 78 reminds us of. God um, punishes them. So he provides for them. He gives them meat to eat. And he also disciplines them. He judges them for their, for their grumbling, for their lack of trust in God, for their disobedience to God, their anger, their, their rebellion to God. God's response to all this is anger. Psalm 78, 31 says, the anger of God rose against them and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Well, first stage of grumbling, God brings fire around the camp and they, they fearfully cry out to Moses, help us. You know, then they, they grumble again. We want meat to eat. God gives them meat to eat and many die from eating this meat. And so you're thinking, lesson learned and so then there's one more example of, of grumbling that follows in, in the very next chapter. We'll look at it next week. Uh, Miriam and Aaron, they're going to grumble about their, their, the leadership situation. And, and then this is not the end of the grumbling for Israel in the wilderness. Um, and, and 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us, may we learn from their example and not go and do likewise. Let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness on display in our lives. Just what a wonderful comment it is to even read that the Lord is good to Israel. You blessed Israel. You promised um, these things and you fulfilled these promises and, and yet their response was so often rebellion against you and disobedience to your commands. God, may we learn from their example. May, may we entrust ourselves to you, our faithful creator. May we serve you all our days. May we, we approach whatever you allow in our lives with, with trust and thanksgiving, uh, giving glory to you that you are in control of all things. And so we just thank you for this lesson that we can read about in, in this text. We love you. Um, be glorified with our worship as we go from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.